1: It is still crowdfunding month here at Canada Land. This is the time of year when we ask for your support so we can keep doing what we do, making Oppo and all the other podcasts and journalism that Canada Land is doing and doing such a great job with.
2: So I started my own organization lately, Sandy, and I found something really interesting. What was that, Jen? You know, firstly, I think that. Having independent journalistic outlets that are at least partially or wholly funded by readers is absolutely the way forward, at least in the medium term. I don't think that any of the trends that we've been seeing in media in terms of how we're funded are going to reverse anytime soon. And if you want to help fill this gap that's increasingly being left by the corporate media, uh, failing corporate media dinosaurs, you really need to put your money where your mouth is. And, you know, even just a couple of bucks, you know, it just it goes such a long way. So I discovered a couple of interesting things. One, you know, it's actually shocking to me how a little bit of money from a lot of people goes such a long way. Like, you you honestly think that your five bucks doesn't matter? Let me tell you, as someone who's on the receiving end of this stuff now, your five bucks is what makes journalism possible. Because it's your five bucks compounded by the 100 or 200 or 400 or 1,000 other people who are all giving their five bucks. And even that tiny amount of money adds up so quickly. So if you think five bucks isn't going to make a difference, I'm just going to come right out and tell you you're completely wrong. That commitment every month makes the difference between an organization that can survive and an organization that cannot. Um, And then the other thing I I also discovered is that if you are funding a journalism organization in this way, uh, you get a lot of attrition. People's uh, credit cards expire or payment processes don't go through for whatever reason. And so every month that you exist, you are actually losing subscribers. Um, and you have to make up for it by doing campaigns like the ones we're doing now, and that's crowdfunding campaigns, reminding people to uh, renew their subscriptions, reminding people to get on board um, and continuing to grow your fan base. So that is why we're here talking about crowdfunding, and that's why Canada Land is having its crowdfunding
1: month. The easiest way to support our work is to subscribe. It's really easy. Go to CanadaLand.com/slash join and you can subscribe to ad-free versions of Oppo and all five other Canada Land podcasts. That's canadaland.com slash join. And by the way, I'll just throw in here that if you subscribe, you can renew your subscription. But I would also ask you to consider, as Jen points out, the importance of public support for journalism. And please consider if you can, increasing your contribution to Canada land. It's been a wonderful year for me at OPPO this year. We've done some great work and I can't, you know, probably one of the most fun um, episodes was the one that we just recorded with Matthew Green. And there's been so many important, crucial issues that we have looked at, whether it's uh, social media, what's going on with the parties across Canada this year. It's all important. So to those of you who already support Canada Land, thank you. And for those of you who want to start now and pay as little as $5 Canadian a month for an ad-free version of OPPO or any other Canada Land podcast, this is the time. And in return for your support, we have swag. Swag! Subscribe for $9 a month Canadian and you get OPPO plus five other Canada Land shows. That's all of them ad-free. And you get socks socks everybody loves socks everybody needs socks we're going into the cold season or you can get oppo and the full sweeter shows all ad free plus a limited edition duly noted notebook it's actually a very cool looking notebook by the way and a canada land t-shirt and keychain the whole package for just 14 dollars a month those notebooks are really popular and going fast
2: I also understand that they're Moleskine, and if you're a uh, journalism nerd like me, you know that Moleskine is what all of us pretentious assholes actually use when we're sitting in our coffee shop and crafting our stories. Trust me, you want to get the Duly Noted notebook.
1: Yes, and you can check out the swag at canadaland.com join and subscribe. That's canadaland.com join. Thank you. From Canada Land, this is Oppo. Hi, I'm Sandy Garacino in Vancouver. And I'm Jen Gersten in Calgary. How have you been, Sandy? Well, Jen, uh, I am just mesmerized and enthralled and white-knuckling the whole American election situation, which I think a lot of Canadians are, and, and I'm just basically spending my time watching screens, all screens everywhere, so I'm going to have a huge withdrawal when this election is over.
2: Oh, shit, that's happening today, right?
1: Yeah. Oh. Oh. You. Oh. You didn't notice. Yeah. I forgot.
2: Yeah. I had blocked it all out. I'd blocked all. I had blocked all of the dark things out of my brain. So we're going to completely avoid talking about the American election as much as possible, because to be perfectly frank, there's nothing that we can do about it at this point anyway. All we can do is strap in and. Get on the
1: ride. Yeah, just fasten our seatbelts. But looking down south, though, with all the momentum that Joe Biden has received, especially from the progressive flank of American politics, we were wondering whether the progressive left being combined into the centrist party is more effective to achieve political power. It seems to have been a huge benefit to Joe Biden in these races.
2: I don't know. I sort of think the last 50 years of American politics would suggest that like the progressive flank is not on the winning team and that a two-party system has been sort of problematic for them. But I'm open to this idea.
1: So to answer these questions, we're going to speak with Matthew Green, NDP Member of Parliament for Hamilton Centre. headlines. What caught my eye, of course, is how a Canadian senator illegally donated money to the Trump campaign. Lynn Bayek donated $300 to the Republican National Committee under a fake New York address. Uh, when called out by Vice, her people responded that she's getting a refund and this was done in error. I, uh, I don't know exactly how you. Some error, I, yeah. Some some. Is this someone hacked into her phone? Yes. Donated three hundred dollars to Donald Trump and 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 accidentally said that she lived in uh, I think it was New York. Um, And hot on her heels with another endorsement came uh, Manitoba Conservative Senator Don Plett endorsing Donald Trump and saying that he hopes that Republican senators pull through with a majority. Uh, You know, with Donald Trump pretty much openly advocating violence to suppress and intimidate voters and maybe take revenge on them depending on the outcome of the election with his abject failure over the COVID crisis, which is going to result, it has already resulted in at minimum tens of thousands of excessive deaths and will, if he continues, result in hundreds of thousands of American deaths and our Canadian border shut down. I don't know how any sitting politician in Canada can support this and they certainly shouldn't be doing it illegally.
2: However, the idea that like every single public figure has to see Donald Trump in exactly the same way that we do, which is obviously the right way. Uh, you know, I mean, it is the right way. But I also think that might not be realistic. We know that like something like 90% of Canadians are supportive of Joe Biden. That's about as close to universal as you are ever going to get in politics. You're always going to get the 10%. You're always going to get the oddball. It's like,
1: I don't I don't make too much of an issue of that, to be honest with you. As long as they don't illegally do anything illegally. Um, And Lynn Bayek is already, uh, she's already kind of on probation because of her comments on residential schools. Oh, she's a bit of a nutter, but that's fine. There you go.
2: All right, so my headline today, um, this story from uh, uh, David Puglisi. David Puglisi, David, you're one of my favorites, but I don't know how to say your last name. Anyway, he came up with a really interesting little story from the Ottawa Citizen that I think is worth uh, paying attention to. And it suggests that there was some kind of proposal um, put forward by the parent company of Cambridge Analytica to create some sort of like quasi-psyops operation within the Canadian military that's aimed at domestic audiences. And 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 uh, for example, he pointed to a couple of examples, including, I don't know if you remember that story about the, the fake story about the wolves wandering around Nova Scotia.
1: I missed that one.
2: Anyway, so apparently there was um, a letter from the Nova Scotia government I'm reading from the Ottawa Citizen here sent out to residents to warn about a pack of wolves on the loose in the province was forged by Canadian military personnel as part of a propaganda training mission that went off the rails. I mean, But that was that wasn't authorized to go out as we understand. Well, it. so they tell us. I mean, but the fact that they are engaging in this kind of stuff or even playing with it is is interesting to me and I think that that is worth watching because while I think that the the Cambridge Analytica stuff was a little bit well, very overblown, as we now found out. Um, you know, the fact that, you know, we have governments all over the world sort of trying to use forms of not just communications, but kind of deeply manipulative PSYOP operations on domestic populations. I think that's, that to me, my my yellow flags are up.
1: Although it is worth pointing out that Defence Minister Harjit Sajjan has said that the plan is not authorized to proceed. It's reported that he has raised concerns about these activities Um, and that no such plan has been approved or will be, according to Sajjan's press secretary.
2: Totally worth noting. However, I'd encourage people to read the story because I don't find those denials to be particularly entirely totally convincing. But anyway, I just think it's something to watch.
1: Something to watch. Welcome to Oppo, Matt Green. To start things off, both with the proroguing decision um, for the NDP supporting the Liberal government and then once again on the ethics vote, which the Liberals determined to be a government confidence vote, the NDP again came in and supported the government. So if the NDP is only going to support the Liberals, especially when they get into serious trouble, why is there an NDP?
3: That's a great introduction. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, You've asked three questions there. They're very important questions. You started with the premise that we supported the liberals when they came back on their speech from the throne. And I would suggest to you that couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, the liberals were itching for an election. They want to get as far away from the scandals and the corruptions and the cover-ups that were being unveiled in ethics, in finance, in the health committee uh, and so their knee-jerk reaction was to pro government to basically cease any further disclosure of documents that would have further implicated the Trudeau family, including his mother, as well as his brother, uh, as we kind of watched, kind of go down with 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 the Bill Morneau. And so what they wanted was an election, and what we wanted to do was ensure that Canadians got what they were promised. And this government had the second wave ahead of it. This government had the second session of programs and financial supports for Canadians that would have died immediately. CERB would have ended. The commercial wage supplement would have ended. Small businesses would have been crushed. And they were willing to do that. They were willing to do that to try to blame us or the opposition for the failure of government. But the failure was theirs. And what we wanted to do was ensure that we put some very practical things on the table. We were able to have CERB extended at the full rate of $2,000 where, you know, the liberals wanted to cut it back to sixteen, as well as have, for the first time, 10 paid sick days as a national program through EI. That's a significant thing. And for the fourth party opposition, you know, I would, I would suggest to the listeners that our leader and Jagmeet Singh and our caucus were actually the adults in the room throughout this entire process.
2: Sorry, is, is, your, is it your position that there was no procedural way to extend CERB in the event of an election?
3: No, there wouldn't have. And there would have been some other procedural issues as well, because those are ways and means. Those are money bills that require the consent of government.
2: Right. But I mean, EI doesn't get cut off when there's, a, when there's an election.
3: CERB is not EI.
2: Isn't it not, not administered through the same EI program?
3: If it rolled it back, if they rolled CERB back to EI, then they would have decimated the program and people wouldn't have gotten the supports. Recall that they extended it the first time. And that's, again, on our hand. When the governments came out, the EI patchwork program that the liberals wanted to put out was $900 a month and a bunch of, like, mishmash, other means-tested programs. We called for $2,000, and they provided it. We want it to be universal. They continue to make it means-testing, but they expanded it with the, with the right amount of pressure. And so both the conservatives and the liberals wanted an election. And we wanted to continue to work for Canadians. And that's what we've continued to do as it relates to prorogation. Isn't
2: that largely because you, your, your party wasn't able to actually run an election as effectively as the Liberals
3: and the Conservatives? Well, I mean, Liberals and Conservatives have, they have absolute war chests. There is no doubt about that. But I would suggest that nothing would have material changed for our party. We, we wouldn't have lost any seats in an election. The hope for us is to gain seats because we know that Canadians are better served when there's more new Democrats in the House of Commons. But I mean, I'll be very clear and candid that it's always our goal that we form government. But I think anybody would look at the map and suggest that we probably have a 10-year horizon ahead of us. That would include growing our seat count and growing our regional supports over the next two or three successive election cycles.
1: So the NDP was formed in 1961, and it has never formed a federal government, although it has formed numerous provincial governments. It's one thing to say there's a 10-year horizon, but if you are really at your best saying there's going to be a 10-year horizon to forming government, that's a pretty long horizon. Can you realistically say that the NDP intend to form government at the next election?
3: Yeah, I mean, we always run to form government. That's, that's what every party does.
1: Matt, talk to us like a real person, not as a politician. The politician has to say, yes, we plan to form government, but seriously.
3: I mean, respectfully, I just told you a 10-year horizon and you rejected that. And you wanted to come back and say that I would form government in the next election. I didn't do that. And then you accused me of being a politician. So I'm keeping it real with you and I need you to keep it real with me. We've been a relatively new party. Canada's 150 years old. Both the Liberals and the Conservatives have been here since time immemorial. We're a 60-year-old party formed off of the the CCF and the CLC. And, you know, if you look back to to when we started, we have offered some very incredible advancements in the House of Commons, in government. Healthcare is a pretty significant, progressive thing that we were able to deliver. Uh, Jack Layton in his minority years was able to deliver. We have 24 seats, and we are essentially the official opposition. So when you have conservatives who spent all of COVID Talking about China and guns, while Canadians were dying, New Democrats were fighting for people in long-term care. We were fighting for the expansion of pharmacare. We were fighting for financial supports for small business and people. That's a significant thing.
2: Matt, are you concerned about your party being seen as like basically just a liberal prop-up party? And do you think that that actually might negatively impact the popularity of the NDP?
3: Uh, we're certainly not propping up the liberals. And you know, there were some years within our party that we shifted towards the center. We tried to outliberal the liberals. And there was a time when maybe maybe that's what the public was wanting. But I think what we're seeing in the shock variable of COVID is the recognition that free market capitalism has utterly and completely failed to provide for people in the most dire times, in the most dire needs. The privatized healthcare privatized long-term care has resulted in 10,000 Canadians dying. And I think that this next generation that you're seeing of people are now open to they're beyond the red scare and they're open to compelling democratic economies and alternatives to capitalism the way that it's been uh, you know cronied up by by the, both liberals and conservatives. What we've seen is that the the, the close relationship between politicians, people like Mike Harris, Uh, on the boards of long-term care facilities after gutting them and privatizing them is an incestuous relationship that most Canadians are kind of tired of.
2: I'm not sure that the the, the commonality of the failure of long-term care is necessarily capitalism.
3: Well, I mean, I I would suggest it is, if you look at where the worst outbreaks have happened. Have they happened in public facilities? Yes, they have. But it's also true that public facilities have languished under austerity. That cuts to health care... Uh, by successive conservative and and uh, liberal governments federally, through the through the health Act transfers to provinces and provincially, that in provinces that have invested more in health care did better.
1: in the twenty fifteen federal election under Thomas Mulcair, the NDP tended to move to the center. and in a way, that- Trudeau reversed strategies and moved almost left of the NDP in certain policy areas, it's been a long-term complaint at the NDP level that the Liberals basically steal the best ideas of the NDP and use those um, to build popular support for their, for their own party and then don't follow through when they get into government. Strategically, if the Liberals are just going to steal the NDP's thunder. Where do you stand as a party?
3: Well, I can, I mean, I'll speak for myself. Um, where I stand is I'm inherently a democratic socialist, which is an alternative democratic economic economy model that would, that would vary from maybe perhaps some of the other policy folks within our party in the past. And, you know, Justin Trudeau, this is his birthright. This is a 30-year, 40-year project that probably goes back to, and I say this without malice, but probably goes back to his father's funeral. He delivers this speech and then he's instantly kind of uh, packaged and, and prepared for this, this kind of aristocracy birthright that he has. But nobody will be fooled. They weren't fooled in the last election. They certainly won't be fooled in the next one about the veneer and the very shallow aesthetics of Canadian liberalism under Justin Trudeau. That day is done.
1: No dispute on this side. I mean, you can talk about the personalities, but what does that have to do with the strategic positioning of the NDP, especially given that certainly in the COVID period, the public appetite for moving left, I think, has been really clearly demonstrated. There is widespread support for the increased government spending, and that is an open lane that the Liberals are taking. And have they not effectively closed off a lane to the NDP?
3: No, not at all. And let's be very very clear about something, the Liberal Party and Justin Trudeau are synonymous in their aesthetics and their brand. And that's, I think, the, the, the quagmire that they've gotten themselves in. And certainly, you know, Christia Freeland and, and probably many others on their backbench are certainly capable and able to step up in leadership and will, but it'll be a very different party. And I think that for the people that were hopeful in 2015, and I was one of them, I was hopeful. I'm not a Tom Mulcair New Democrat. In fact, I didn't come a New Democrat until after Tom Mulcair left the party. In fact, Thomas Mulcair, in in many people's political analysis, is is more liberal than he is New Democrat, but I digress. What Justin sold the country in 2015 under Sonny Ways was a compelling alternative for the future direction, juxtaposed to, to the draconian Harper. And we did a great job saying, stop Harper as New Democrats. In fact, we were so successful in stopping Harper that we got Justin Trudeau elected. Fast forward to today. If you look at every step along the way, you know, for instance, Serb eighty one billion dollars go out to workers, while well, you know, at a snap of a finger, this government puts seven hundred and fifty billion dollars in liquidity supports and loosened regulations to the banking sector. They are constantly taking care of their inside liberal cronies, and and that's like they can't help themselves from helping themselves. Now, absent of the Wee scandal. I think he would have come out of this on top of the world. But people can't stomach that type of self-dealing. And I think the longer that we're in a... Selling a little
0: or a lot? Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.
3: Minority position where the opposition controls committee is going to be the longer the liberals will remain in this, in this hell.
2: Um, I wanted to bring up something that's happening on the conservative side and I think is interesting as it pertains to this, the NDP, and that is O'Toole's making a play for Union support. He's making an explicit play for union support, supporting private sector unions. I mean, I see that as a straightforward attempt to uh, generate support among working class former NDP uh, voters who might be put off by the party's social progressivism as opposed to its fiscal progressivism. But I'm interested to hear your take on that
3: yeah I mean, we're in a populist moment. there's no doubt about that. And I think that if there's one thing that liberals and conservatives have in terms of their war chest is access to the very finely desegregated data that is available through groups like Cambridge Analytica and others derivatives that are Canadian and provide really strong insights for both conservatives and liberals. We don't unfortunately have that kind of machine. uh, So I spent a lot of time on Twitter trying to figure it out myself. And I think what they're doing is they're skating to where the puck's going. At the end of the day, like everything that that conservatives accuse liberals of, they themselves have been guilty of. And that's like the, I think for me, I'm still very much an outsider. I'm in the house, fourth party backbench. And I'm listening to these guys uh, do two things. They compete with who gives more money to oil and gas. That's a competition they have in the Boys Club, in the House of Commons. And the second piece is just how corrupt the other one is, using examples that go back to time immemorial. Sorry,
2: is there specific uh, uh, funding to the oil and gas sector that, uh, that uh, got you riled up?
3: Take your pick. Every subsidy that we provide oil and gas is a, is a, is a move away from a just transition. Which one? All of them. Which one? So you want me to say TMX, LNG? You want me to take a oh, shot at T- oh, sorry. T- like, so yeah, you're, you're, like you're including TMX as,
2: as, as a subsidy, an oil, an oil subsidy.
3: All oil and gas subsidies are a step in the wrong direction as it relates to the remaining nine years that we have left on the IPBC. There are significant subsidies that go to oil and gas provincially and federally, estimated in, in, the, in the tens of billions of dollars a year. I'm
1: terribly interested
3: in the strategic part of this conversation, Matt. You say
1: that the NDP got the Liberals elected um, in 2015. I think it's also arguable that the NDP got Stephen Harper elected How? in 2011. The Liberal Party absolutely shot themselves in both feet with appalling choices over leadership, but it really was the rise of, of Jack Layton, which was a marvelous moment in many ways in Canadian, in Canadian history, But that signaled the demise of the Liberals as the opposition, and that opened the door to the federal Conservatives to take the 905 and to begin to dominate in southern Ontario. They can only dominate in southern Ontario when the vote splits between the NDP and the Liberals. Even as the NDP rises, the Tories come in.
3: So fire back. What a ridiculous and entitled analysis on how liberals are de facto like the 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 inherent opposition they squandered in a minority government by refusing to work with us. they squandered their government and then they lost seats and they got they got punished for it that's on them and I hear it like they heckle us across the way talking about how we cost like we were the ones who forced the election and we're the ones who um you know cost the country Stephen Harper, which is just. It's the height of liberal of liberal arrogance, quite frankly, and the fact that they're unwilling to work for Canadians or with other parties in opposition and actually share power is part of their demise. And that's what we're seeing now, too. They would love to go to the polls. So why don't they? Uh, because we didn't give them a reason to. We forced their hand. Well, Justin
1: Trudeau can call an election anytime.
3: Oh, and mark my words, he will make that walk of shame to the governor general sooner rather than later. And then we'll be back on this show talking about it, hopefully. They're already signaling when you have Christia Freeland telling big business that they're going to cut off supports for Canadians, uh, that this, this is not going to last forever. And then publicly telling Canadian like literally in the same day, almost within a, a few tweets, telling Canadians that they're going to be there for them. That kind of double mes- messaging signals that the austerity will come and they will cut back and they can't afford to go to the polls after they've cut people off of Serb.
2: I mean, the PBO itself has basically stated that we can't sustain this level of suspending for more than a year or two.
3: Well, I mean, it depends on how you look at our tax regime, right? Like we could if we had those that, you know, that have profited and those that have done very well pay a little bit more.
1: When I looked south of the border and we looked to see uh, how the uh, Democrats have formed their coalition with the progressive wing. AOC, Bernie Sanders coming in, the Green New Deal. Joe Biden is actually now, and he has been forced to, uh, in order to get the support of the left wing of the party and able to, in in order to build his coalition, he has been forced to present a policy uh, platform that is far to the left of anything that the Democrats have done before. So the question is, Is it strategically better for the left to be inside that tent? Or is it better to be an outsider, i.e., are you a better influencer as a third party or inside?
3: First of all, you're, you're presuming that liberals are left and they are inherently not left. I'll share this observation with you, that in the House of Commons, there are under 25 people regularly who speak in the Liberal caucus. They have their cabinet, and then they have their deputy House leader, Kevin Lamoureux. To be a Liberal backbench is to languish in the purgatory of the House of Commons. I have had the ability to stand up as the fourth party opposition, as a New Democrat, as a a leftist, and hold this government to account in ways that even the most progressive liberal could not.
1: In ways that AOC could not in
3: the US? There's a completely different system. Our our power is so concentrated, the the votes are so whipped in the House of Commons that a maverick on the Liberal bench and in, in Nathan Earnskey Smith votes with his party ninety six or ninety seven yeah. percent of the time, and he's considered to be a like you know a super maverick, and mm-hmm. that's not how like you're comparing apples to oranges. That's a really key point in very real ways, right? And so I look at my friends across the way who who I think care about climate change and have to eat the proverbial sandwich when they go and do things that are not in favor of climate change or that are, you know, desperately fighting for racial justice when this government really has only been interested in the very mere aesthetics and and symbolism of racial justice. And I think like, you know, there is no scenario, I'll be very clear for your listeners, under which new Democrats and liberals would form a coalition. None. But
2: but I mean, effectively, you have formed a coalition.
3: No, we haven't. The liberals
2: have survived now two confidence votes: the throne speech and the uh, We uh, Ethics Committee.
3: They didn't. They didn't survive the Ethics Committee. To be clear,
2: they've survived a confidence vote that the Conservatives put forward
3: as a result of the We scandal. It's what the Liberals contrived as a confidence vote.
2: Uh, sure. The point being that they survived both of those votes, which would otherwise have tumbled their government with NDP support.
3: We didn't support the Liberal government. We supported. The motion of the day, which is what opposition does.
2: This is semantics, and you know it. It's you not supported semantics. the opposition of the day, which led to the to the government not falling. That means you supported the liberal government.
3: That's not now, true. Now you may have
2: had st- you may have had strategic reasons to support the liberal government, and good ones. You couldn't run an election and win. Fine, I understand that. But I mean, that's what you did.
3: No, I mean you can call it whatever you want. I happen to be there, and I'll tell you that they wanted an election. They wanted an election. We wanted to work for Canadians.
2: If they wanted an election, they could have had an election.
3: Yeah, they will. But they wanted to blame it on us because they think that they would get a majority if they could say, look, we came with something reasonable like they've done in 2011. These are playbooks that are not new. I mean, we've heard it all before. So
2: this is the theory. The theory was that they really wanted the election, but you didn't support the liberal government by failing to give them the election that they really wanted because they really wanted was to have an election that they could blame you for. That's right. Okay. Just checking.
3: Yeah. And you know who else? Now that we're on it, now now if we're gonna get if we're gonna get real candid, you know who else didn't want an election? Really deep down in their hearts, who didn't want an election? The conservatives didn't. They were begging that we would clean up the ethics stuff and, and make sure that the government can continue to go, because their caucus was in a complete disarray with a new leader. They hadn't even got their feet under them, and they got so blustered. It's such a toxic environment, and you know a bunch of dogs barking on either side. And I'm saying I'm saying that as uh, like non gendered so that's not like specifically the dudes in the house the toxic masculinity that i don't think they wanted one either as much as what they want to tell their base and raise money on it they weren't prepared to go
1: Finishing off on my questions, and again, thinking strategically, one of the points that you have raised relates to the whiteness, the whiteness that has been inherent in both of the major parties. Of course, Jagmeet Singh, as a visible minority, represents a major departure for the first time in Canadian politics. Is there something about the new Democratic Party that holds special value for Canadians of color, uh, for black indigenous people of color? Is there some role that you see the party fills that other parties do not?
3: That's a very important question. Yeah. Uh, I, I would suggest that liberalism is identity politics without the class analysis. And I, I would I would share with you that in the debates that I've had around defund the police, around, um, you know, dismantling white supremacy, Tackling anti blackness and anti indigeneity, you would be amazed at how many white liberals with BLM in their Twitter profile uh, attack me for calling into question the authenticity of Justin Trudeau when he talks and deals about this stuff. And, and it, it, you know, it really is for me, it's a feeling. It's only a feeling and experience that I've had individually as a member of parliament. I can't speak for anybody else and I wouldn't try. Um, It's a feeling that people want to be aspirationally progressive in the Liberal Party, and, and in the Liberal Party membership or general identification in the country. They do. Until it comes, until it comes to upsetting like the, 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 the power analysis or the distribution of power in ways that are actually equitable. And so identity politics, it's all identity politics, by the way. A 40-gallon, bucket-gallon hat in Calgary for the Stampede is identity politics. Quebec, you know, uh, Francophone nationalism is identity politics. Uh, What's happening right now in Nova Scotia with the white fishermen there is identity politics. The problem, though, with whiteness and liberalism is that identity politics uh, only feels like people of color because it's a rejection of the understanding that whiteness is also the hegemonic identity of the country.
2: Kind of going back to Sandy's question about um, whether or not the NDP can find more of a role for itself as being, I guess, representative of people of color in this country. You know, you, you mentioned defund the police. You know, when we look at polling in the United States about, you know, support among the black community for things like defund the police, it's not that great. It's not it's not that big.
3: I'll share with you in Canada, Ippos Reid basically has 51 support. Of, of all Canadians supporting defund the police.
2: Also what makes this more complicated is that there's different understandings about what defund the police even means right so it's it's, it's an interesting question. but I mean I think the interesting question for me is if the NDP wants to sort of stake out its a position as as being more of a of a pioneering party, for people of color, which, I mean, in the past, the liberals have tried to stake out that position successfully, and the conservatives, ironically, have tried to stake out that position and successfully in previous elections. I mean, it, the problem, of course, is that, you know, people of color don't all believe the same thing, and they're not all progressive. So it, it's I think that that's an interesting challenge and attention to work with.
3: Oh, 100%. No, you're, you're, you're not wrong. And, you know, at, at the end of the day, um, we're not trying to stake out this ground. Jagmeet mm. Singh, by virtue of being the leader has no choice but to stake out that ground. Leah Gazan, every time she stands up in the House of Commons, etches her words in the history books, Mumalak, Cluck Cluck, Jenny Kwan, uh, myself, you know, so we're doing it by virtue of being there. And our politics are formed by our lived experiences. And they are coming from a working class analysis. And I think the scramble that you're going to see is when the conservatives try to remake themselves in this right-wing populism that tries to speak to workers, is they're going to have inherent gaps in the authenticity of the way they message people. And what they're going to resort to is what they always resort to, which is the xenophobic dog whistles that divide working class white people from working class everybody else. And I think that'll be the inherent distinction between Aaron O'Toole and what we're trying to bring to the table, which is that, you know democratic economies and providing for the least among us it's inherently better for everybody regardless of how much money you make or what god you pray to or what color your skin is
1: matt thank you so much for joining us today this has been a, a, a terrific contribution to the political discussion in canada thank you so Jen, what's what's your takeaway? That was a, that was a fascinating interview.
2: Well, I guess I guess capitalism's out, man. I don't know what to tell you. I find it's always really interesting when people who are of a slightly more conservative frame talk to people who are from the NDP, and how much sort of. Uh, overlap there is and sort of perspectives on the world, even if there's just a fundamentally different sense of how to deal with and cope with those perspectives. Because I found some of his analysis was, I more or less agreed with it, particularly where the liberals were concerned. It's kind of funny to me that I think people who are conservative bent and, a, and an NDP bent generally see the liberals the same way,
1: <laughs>
2: you know? Um, uh, so that was interesting to me. I mean, there mm-hmm. were a couple of doozies he threw in there. I mean, without wanting to get into it, the Cambridge Analytica thing did make me snort a little bit. I think there's been lots of uh, stories to come out, especially in the last couple of weeks to point out that the Cambridge Analytica story is massively overblown. I kind of give them a little bit of hell over oil and gas subsidies. You know, th- a lot of that has to do with the fact that what people on the left often term oil and gas subsidies, you know, when you start to pick away at them, they're things like... Uh, tax credits for failed exploration, which, you know which, I mean? like which is which is which is not they, a small a,
1: matter, and, and sure. things and things like no, the not, it's o- not a small matter. Treatment no, no. of orphan yeah, wells, yeah, yeah. et cetera. Hundred
2: to- totally. percent, exactly. Orphan wells, exactly. It's, or it's orphan well stuff, or or you know they're framing like the Trans Mountain expansion as an oil and gas subsidy. Like you know y- y- we could we could nitpick on some of this stuff, and, but because I think it kind of presents it presents it presents this image of like the government just like handing over a billions of dollars, and it's not. It's not quite like that, but you know these are nitpicks. You know, um, on the whole, it was I thought it was a fun conversation.
1: I was really, really intrigued by his contrasting of the um, left wing of the Democratic Party, just for shorthand, let's call it the AOC wing, and the whipped votes. In the House of Commons, I thought that was such a crucial point was to was to point out that there are not free votes. And what gives different interest groups or gives different political perspectives more power and more voice in the United States in their system is that with rare exceptions, votes are not whipped.
2: Yeah, I thought that was a bit of a ridiculous point because uh, votes are whipped in the United States, and anybody who watches House of Cards could point that out, right? Like, like the idea that that votes are whipped in Canada but not there is ridiculous. Votes are whipped; they're horse traded. Um, it's a different system, absolutely. But part of the reason why we have such a a, a whipped system in Canada has to do with how uh, parties can withdraw support for individual MPs at nomination races. That's also that's often what keeps votes in line, but a similar type of system plays out in the United States like you know somebody who goes against a whip vote um can find themselves on the wrong side of the RNC and find themselves a a, a subject to to uh primary challenges so like the idea that the American system isn't whipped i think is is just uh wrong <laughs> i think that's incorrect
1: i will only counter with the the fact that Uh, Certain political perspectives have absolutely made themselves heard and have exerted very significant power in the United States. But it could be argued the same thing is true with the third party system, third, fourth party system in Canada. Certainly the Greens have had uh, an outsized impact uh, in, in Canadian political life.
2: Well, isn't this the exact opposite of what Americans always complain about, that the uh, two-party system that they actually deal with has created an extraordinary narrow Overton window about how much any party can move to the left or the right? Whereas in Canada, sort of our our multi-party system has traditionally given actually more voices to people like Matt Green and the NDP. I mean, traditionally, the NDP has been quite content to serve as the role of the conscience of the Liberal Party and has arguably dragged the Liberal Party much further to the left.
1: And that's, that's the argument, isn't it? Yeah. Is that um, by effectively forcing the Liberals to adopt their own positions as the outsider, they played an outsized role.
2: Now it's time for the mailbag. Question this week from Lisa Gliss girl over Twitter. Can you explain what the deal is with the B.C. Conservative Party? Why don't they exist? Do the B.C. Liberals fill the right-wing party rule for voters? As an Ontarian, this is hard for me to wrap my head around. Thanks. Well, Lisa this girl over Twitter, that's essentially correct. The B.C. Liberal Party is actually the Conservative Party, and the Conservative Party
1: is a rump party. All of this really goes back to sort of the history of the BC Liberal Party, because they only came into prominence uh, in the late 80s and and early 90s, because the Conservative uh, Party in BC really was the Social Credit Party, And after many years in power in an extraordinary debate, the liberal leader at the time, Gordon Wilson, totally flipped the narrative, was able to insert the Liberal Party as supposedly the common-sense centrist party. That's what the magic secret sauce has always been in BC politics is in a supposedly polarized environment to get to a centrist party. And now the problem that the BC Liberal Party faces is that It really didn't govern from the center. It was pretty much moving over to the right, having been occupied by a lot of federal conservatives. And wouldn't you know it, the BC NDP party, supposedly coming from the left, entered into that centrist space and they pretty much govern from the center left. And it turns out they get the prize of the majority government. And the BC Liberal Party is, well, a lot of people are asking right now exactly that very question in BC. Well, what is the BC Liberal Party?
2: So I love this conversation because A, that's great history of background. And also it allows me to sort of expound a little bit on median voter theory and why typically speaking, most parties that actually get into power move to the center of whatever the ideological spectrum is in that day, because that's also where the voters are, to be blunt. Exactly. It's kind of
1: the bell curve, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it's a bell curve. Exactly. Like like Voters voters always exist on a bell curve, and you want to be, you know, 50% plus one on that bell curve. So you're always going, if you want to be in power, you're always going to be shifting to where the middle of the day is.
1: Anyway, I hope that was helpful. If you have any other questions you'd like us to answer, tweet us at opocast, or you can email us, Oppo at Canadalandshow.com.
2: That's it for Oppo this week. We'll be back again in two more weeks. Once again, the ways to get in touch are at oppo at Canadalandshow.com or on Twitter at OppoCast.
1: This episode was produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production from Kate McIntosh and Gabe Knox. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Music by Nathan Burley.